during my 36 years as a pastor at Rexel Alliance Church, I did a lot of premarital counseling. <laughs> On one occasion, one young couple came to me and said, hey, do you know what kind of a reputation you have amongst young couples who are seeking premarital counseling? I said, no, tell me. He said, what I was told was this, if you want somebody who's going to ask you the questions that you hope nobody asked, you need to go to Pastor Sundar. Well, I don't know whether the reputation was a good one to have or not, but it's probably not a bad idea because you see, we all struggle to a greater or lesser extent when it comes to this thing called blockage. In our relationships, we just block out information or truth about the other person that we don't really want to hear because it might get in the way of what we want to do. And that's called blockage. It actually happens in other dimensions of our life as well, but specifically in this context of uh, premarital counseling. We usually rationalize away information that somebody may give by way of their observation that doesn't square with our picture of this beautiful person that we plan to get married to. Now, a slight variation of this blockage issue are questions that are sitting at the back of one's mind. They haven't really been blocked out, but they haven't been on the front burner for a while. Sometimes those kind of questions can be asked too. I remember an occasion where there was another young pastor that I was mentoring and uh, I called him up as was my practice and said, hey, uh, what can I pray for you this week? And he recounted an incident that happened in his Sunday school class. Uh, they were actually studying the book of Acts and kind of in the middle of it without any warning, this layman throws up his hands and says, pastor, where is this power? And he kind of shared that with me and said, so Sundar, could you please pray for power in my ministry and in the life of the church. Now, that question stayed with me because that question actually was lodged in my back burner and he moved it to the front burner. Now, it wasn't lodged in the back because of blockage. It was simply because of busyness in my ministry, which also happened to be a very satisfying ministry. So the understanding, fo understandable focus was on the Father and on the Son but the Holy Spirit was, in fact, the forgotten member of the Trinity. In fact, I'm probably not too far out of the mark to say in most churches, Advent Christmas gets attention. Good Friday gets attention. Easter Sunday gets attention. But Ascension Sunday and Pentecost, probably not so. Francis Chan wrote his famous book, The Forgotten God, addressing precisely this issue. Now, if that is true of pastors, it's not surprising about people. <laughs> I remember an occasion when our neighbor, many, many years ago, before I started working at Rexdale, their 12-year-old daughter, they were from a Catholic background, and she had had her first communion. So she came running up to my, mother, uh, my wife with great excitement and said, Mrs. Christian, Mrs. Christian, I had my first communion today, and I prayed to the Father, Son, and Holy Spearmint. Now, <laughs> we can laugh at that, it's probably an extreme example of someone untaught in the Holy Spirit. But truth to be told, while we may not mispronounce him Holy Spearman, if we were asked today to articulate who exactly this person of the Holy Spirit is and why is he so important or is he, I kind of suspect we will also be quite tongue-tied when it comes to that. He's so far off the radar screen for most of us that we probably don't ask, where is the power? Now, the reasons are many. Uh, for those of us who've been in church for quite a while, 
you probably remember the, remember the time when Holy Spirit was referred to as Holy Ghost, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Ye, who wants ghosts around, you know? So we're kind of leery, and Spirit is probably not too far away from that. Ho Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I'm not quite sure of that. We've probably come across individuals or read stories about people who in the name of the Holy Spirit have done kind of eccentric things and said weird things. And, and we don't want that. Truth to be told, for many of us, in at 10, out at 11, maybe 11.15 at certain times, and then off for roast beef in the afternoon or an outdoor barbecue or football games or baseball games or whatever, begin to take charge. We're quite happy with that, and we don't want the spirit to come and in, interrupt all of those things. Dr. Tozer, who was a famous pastor decades ago of this alliance, Bayview Glen Church, when it was downtown known as Avenue Road, described it this way, borrowing an Old Testament practice as a metaphor. He said, it's sort of like we've built the altar, killed the sacrificial and animals, arranged the pieces on the altar, and we are completely happy that there is no fire from above. Let's take care of it. Isn't it time to ask the question, my brothers and sisters? Where is the power? Having been made new, where is the power to actually get renewed? To be able to move from the tyranny of things to the freedom of generosity. From pride and self-promotion in the workplace to glad service. From hurry and anxiety to rest. From disenchantment to wonder. Last week we heard about unity. And if you happen to be one of the few people who are experiencing that power, why aren't far more people excited about that journey? Why are there so many prodigals in the church? Why are we losing so many teenagers from the transition from grade 12 to university? What has happened with this unbelievably radical transformation and the introduction of the social agenda into the lives of our kindergarten kids and an election behind us by now that probably doesn't promise much change? Above all, why are we so content with the pieces arranged upon the altar with no fire? My goal today is to create some holy discontent. To maybe create an appetite for the freedom to move this time from pessimism and resignation to a holy optimism when it comes to this whole issue of power in our lives. And I come like the Apostle Paul today, honestly. I don't come to sway you with eloquence of speech or with the cleverness of my subtly carefully reasoned arguments. Now I come like Paul said in weakness and in fear and in trembling. Hopefully in demonstration of the spirit of power so that your faith might rest not in the wisdom of man but in the power of God. In fact the reason Paul speaks at all and therefore I speak is because he said but even though I come in weakness and fear and trembling God has given us a secret wisdom. And we speak spiritual truth to spiritual men in spiritual words, men and women who have the mind of Christ. That's why I come to speak at all, because I believe the same things. And so to kind of put my feet where my mouth is, as it were, in a time period from about April 22nd to May 25th, 
where I was doing the bulk of my preparation for this message. I didn't crack any commentaries. I did not look at any of my past sermons. But in my regular time of Bible reading, prayer and worship every day, I just opened myself up to the Spirit to say, you download into my spirit whatever you think I need to share. And out of all of those things that came in that time, I have tried to discern what this congregation needs to hear at this time. Not because I'm a brilliant discerner, but because I trust in the Holy Spirit and the sovereign God who knows where you are and who chose me to come and speak on this particular Sunday. So my hope and my trust is in him. So I come in weakness, but I also come trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you are the best judges of whether that came across okay or not. So, where do we start this journey? With an assertion that the Holy Spirit is absolutely indispensable to the Christian life. Now, why do I say that? Let's begin with the disciples, the Jesus' first apostles. Now, one would think that after somebody had encountered the risen Christ the way they did, they'd be just ready to charge out with the mission. I mean, after all, the two men on the road to Emmaus heard Jesus expound the scriptures on the Old Testament scriptures, walked them through the entire the law, the prophets and the writings to how, explain how he was the goal of all of those things. And they afterwards they said our hearts were burning. They had a biblical exposition of their entire scriptures that set their hearts burning. Then in a meal, their eyes were opened to see Jesus. Their bodies were energized, so they ran all the way back at the end of a day's tired journey, all the way back to Jerusalem to share the news. Later, Jesus appears to these same disciples, instructs their mind in the scriptures, so their minds are getting renewed. And then he continues to do this for 40 days. The book of Acts opened by saying, and, and while he met with them, literally the word is while he was eating with them. In the context of that eating, he was revealing more of himself. And by the way, that eating is extremely important. It's not just about nice fellowship. Because when Jesus sat with them and ate food, meat, chewed on bread like you and I do, it was communicating that clearly this was no ghost that they were seeing. This was no illusion. As C.S. Lewis said, the resurrection is as literal as bread and broiled fish. And what was the significance of that? Jesus was the first fruit of the new heavens and the new earth. That which they were waiting for one day. And by the way, that's what eternal life meant in the context of the first century. Not us dying and going to heaven. It meant this age and the age to come. The age to come, the marriage of heaven and the marriage of earth coming together in one new creation. Oh, that had already begun in Jesus. In him, heaven and earth had met. He was... The marriage of heaven and earth personified. Everybody will one day have a body like his. That was the significance of this 40 days. Now you tell me, Bayview Glen Church, if that was possible for you to have Jesus in your midst at every home group, every glad conversation, eating broiled fish or steak or whatever it is with you, sharing with you all kinds of things, giving you that kind of assurance, unlocking the scriptures, setting your hearts burning, and engaging your bodies, opening our eyes to see the glory of Jesus. How about you'd be all set to complete this mission, right? No. Because after all of this, what did Jesus say to them? Don't go. You are going to be my witnesses everywhere, but don't go until you receive power. Until the Holy Ghost has come upon you. 
That's what I meant when I said the Holy Spirit and the power of the Spirit is absolutely indispensable to serving Jesus in the Christian life. God, you might say, of course, those were the apostles. It was the beginning. It was mission impossible. Look at the opposition of Rome, of Greece, of the militancy of Judaism, of the underworld, Diana, the goddess of the underworld, the mystery religions. They needed that kind of power. They couldn't afford to fail. True. But is the assertion also true for ordinary believers like you and me today? It is. And I want to take a sampling of what the scriptures teaches about the Holy Spirit in your life and my life. Dishwashers, garbage collectors, sound technicians, musicians, artists, businessmen, downtime, lawyers, doctors, engineers, anybody. And you will see an impressive list mounting for you, for your eyes. First and foremost, the Holy Spirit is the one that regenerates us. Jesus in John chapter 3 said that famous thing to Nicodemus, except a man be born again. Actually, it's not the most accurate translation, although born again has made its way into evangelical subculture for 30, 40, 50 years. The word literally is born from above. In, in other words, you are dead and something has to happen from outside of you to give you life. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Titus, another young pastor to a first century church, calls it, you, you were regenerated. By the washing of regeneration and renewal, the made new part of it. The, the Holy Spirit giving you life. Christianity is not about embracing new ideas, although there are new ideas to embrace. It is not about turning over a new leaf, although yes, you will be transformed gradually. It is first and foremost about the reenactment of the miracle of the incarnation. That just like the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and into a teenager's womb conceived life where there was no life before without any other agency. And that life began to grow inside. Conceiving Jesus, the, the second person of the Trinity in Mary. That's exactly what happens when the Holy Spirit regenerates us. The life of Christ is formed within us. So the Holy Spirit does it. Apart from that, we'd be dead in our sins and trespasses. We might periodically make New Year's resolutions, but that's about it. So he regenerates us. And then the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit of adoption. What is that all about? We're not just made alive with an embryonic life of Christ within us. We are also ushered into a new relationship with God, not as a scary God from whom we need to stay far away, but a God who's our father, a God who loves us, who adopts us into his family, who delights within us. And Jesus is our elder brother. And the book of Hebrews, read chapter two, it tells us that Jesus, our elder brother, takes us into the most holy place and is delighted to introduce us to the father as his younger brothers and younger sisters. It's a language of the family. He who makes us holy and we who are being made holy are all of one family. God is our Father who takes a great delight within us. That's why the Apostle Paul quotes on in Galatians and he says, In the fullness of time God sent his Son, born of a woman, incarnation, 
born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. That's justification, salvation, redemption. Why? In order that we might receive the full rights of sonship of sons and daughters, he has sent the spirit of his son into our heart that we might cry, Abba, Father. The work of the Holy Spirit is to call forth Abba, Father within us. Every single one of us, men and women. And then in Romans chapter 8, Paul says to us, the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, witnesses with our spirit, small s, that we are sons and daughters of God. And this is no small thing. It means there is no room for shame in our relationship at all. So many people struggle with this thing called shame. But instead, Jesus specifically says he is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. It is also massively important for service. Look at how many of us serve as Christians. We work very hard. We then get our significance tied up in our work because we want adoration, we want adulation, we want somebody to say you did a great job and yes, we all need encouragement, but we look to it for that. Maybe because in our childhood, so often appreciation was uh, our approval, a, a sense of belonging was tied to what we do, not just who we are. And so we carry that over and so we work very hard. Our significance gets tied up in our work. When we don't get that significance, then there's emptiness inside. We look for sustenance in the wrong places. That's where, where is, whether the sustenance is a pornography or eating or a shopping spree or the corner office at work, doesn't matter what it is. You're looking for significance from there, all the while desperately hoping for acceptance. Jesus didn't start that way. Jesus started with acceptance. Before he had done anything, we are told, that the Spirit came, Holy Spirit came upon him, heavens open up like a dove, and the voice of God says, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased, before he had done anything. Jesus started out of acceptance. He continued to receive that voice of acceptance on the Mount of Transfiguration just before he would go to the cross. He heard the same voice again, you are my beloved son. He served out of significance, not into significance. In John chapter 13, it says, knowing where he had come from, knowing where he was going, knowing all power had been given to him, he took off his outer towel and he washed the feet of the disciples. And he completed the Father's work with joy. Adoption is so crucial. And listen, this truth to go from here to here, the 18 inches from the head to the heart, that's the longest distance any truth has had to travel. Because we find it hard to believe that we are loved this way. It's the work of the Holy Spirit and therefore transforms our service. Then comes the illumination. The Holy Spirit illumines the word of God and gives us understanding and insight. He reveals the mind of Christ, renewing our minds in the same time. This is the secret wisdom that Paul talks about, but God has destined the secret wisdom for us, a wisdom that he destined for our glory and your glory. You see, when the Holy Spirit regenerates, has something happened to our mind. He has taken a dark, futile and ignorant mind and he's made it capable of being renewed in knowledge and holiness and righteousness. And it is the Holy Spirit's job to take that renewable mind and make it progressively new as he keeps unlocking the scriptures to us. The word of God and the spirit of God working together actually repeats in us what the resurrected Jesus did on Luke 24. He unlocks the whole scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, 
showing how every single one of them had to do flowing into Christ and coming out of Christ so that our hearts set, are set burning, our minds are instructed, our bodies are energized, and so we serve. That's the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit of illumination. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, this Bible would remain a dead book. And many people honestly say, yeah, devotions, dry as dust, boring. And then fourthly, the Holy Spirit forms the character of Christ within us. He regenerates us. He assures us of our adoption as children of God. He illuminates the scriptures to reveal his mind and renew our mind. And he forms us into the image of Christ, having conceived Christ in us, just like Jesus grew inside Mary's womb. And by the way, continued to grow outside her womb, distending her, taking her all the way to the cross where she never expected to go. He kept reshaping her inside and outside, literally inside, figuratively outside. The, the, the life of Christ within us continues to grow and it's the work of the Spirit to keep forming the life of Christ and he does it through what the Bible calls fruit. So in Galatians 4, Paul talks about adoption. In Galatians 5, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, long-suffering, self-control, perseverance. By the way, these are all the things that is going to help you preserve the unity of the Spirit that you heard about. That is absolutely crucial. And so the Holy Spirit is conceiving and forming fruit within us and shaping the very likeness of Christ within us. By the way, that's where the spiritual disciplines come in. We cooperate with him in the spiritual fruit formation. And then fifthly, he says he helped, Romans 8, Paul says he helps us in our weakness. Now, not general weakness, Specific weakness. What weakness? He says we don't know how to pray. The Holy Spirit helps us in our prayers, taking the groanings of our heart. In other words, feelings that we can't even put into words or we dare not put into words. Now the larger, what is it? This is, this is generally true that the Holy Spirit can help us in our prayers. It's generally true that he edits our words into the words that the Father hears, but the larger context, and I actually never realized it until this time around. The larger context for it is all of creation is groaning, it says. It's this tension between the already and the not yet that theologians talk about. The already is, the, is Jesus already risen from the dead. Jesus already king of the universe. Jesus already seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus already king of the universe. But on earth, it doesn't look like that. The kingdom isn't here. It is the not yet part of it that leads to all these difficult questions that makes us want to throw up our hands in pessimism and resignation and disenchantment and settle instead for pride and wealth and things like that. So the question is, how do we live out this tension between the already and the not yet? How do we pray to an already enthroned Jesus while being true to the pains and the anguish and the sorrows and the questions of the not yet, that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. He helps us in our weaknesses to live in this not yet and already tension. And those groaning prayers are what you and I call prayers of lamentation. This culture is not good at lamenting. But that's a part of our praying. That's how we don't let either one of these things live on their own. We don't lapse into a naive optimism. Jesus is Lord, I have no problem in life. Or, I can't handle this stuff, I'm quitting. How do you live in that tension? The Holy Spirit comes to help us.
in our lamentations. And then lastly, it says he gives us spiritual gifts. Jesus is the head and you and I the body. Paul says in Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we are also simultaneously, organically connected to every other Christian that's ever been alive. We don't see the organic connection, but we are organically connected. One head and the rest of us are members of the body. And it is the body working together, getting orders from the head that makes the invisible Christ visible. Let me give you a simple analogy. Who drives a car? When you get in behind the wheels of a car, does the head drive the car? Well, I guess, of course, because the head knows everything. The head knows you have to turn the key. The head knows when to press the accelerator. The head knows when to switch the signals on. The head knows when to throw the reverse uh, gear in place. The head knows all of those things, but the head by itself can't drive the car. The head signals the body. The head signals the leg. The head signals the eye. The head signals the ear. And all of them play a part taking their directions from this head. And the car drives the way it is supposed to. You lose connection with the head. You're in trouble. The body can't do anything. But interestingly, the head without the body doesn't do anything. Although he can. The spiritual gifts have been given to us for precisely that purpose. Interesting, isn't it? The fruit is the same in every Christian. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, gentleness, kindness, meekness, self-control. Persevere. Because this is the character of Christ. That's the same. But the gifts are different. The fruit, the character builds credibility for our visible representation of Jesus. The gifts are actually make our service effective together. So there's both credibility and effectiveness through the gifts and the fruit working together. And they're all the work of the Holy Spirit of God. I mean, the only reason my primary spiritual gift is teaching, the only reason I'm teaching for 59 years, I've been teaching now since I became a Christian, is because I am plugged into a body. There are other men and women with gifts of evangelism and helps and service and encouragement and giving and hospitality who have worked together with me so that some kind of fruitfulness comes from this. I mean, there are people who are recording this message right now using their gifts of service and their, and their knowledge of, of technology that is way beyond my understanding. And they're doing a good job. In fact, the better job they do, the more invisible they become. That's why I get the credit and they don't, but they should, because we're all working together for them. So put it together, my brothers and sisters, and will you agree with me that the Holy Spirit is indispensable? He regenerates. He assures us of our adoption. He illuminates the scriptures, revealing the mind of Christ to renew our minds. He forms us into the image of Christ as we cooperate with him through the spiritual disciplines. He helps us in our weaknesses, especially to navigate the already and the not yet tension through this thing called lamentation. So that we are held in that tension between either giving into a naive optimism or a crushing pessimism and instead are there in a holy optimism that puts the two of them together. And then he gives us spiritual gifts, plants us in a body, connects us all to the head so that there is both effective and credible service for the kingdom as we make the invisible Christ visible. One last question, and that'll bring us to the final ministry of the Holy Spirit. Having been regenerated, what's going to keep us doing this work? Keep breaking through to letting the Holy Spirit bear witness with our spirit that we are indeed adopted sons and daughters. Rejecting shame. 
keeping on turning the cycle of service, not starting from works into acceptance, but starting from acceptance into work. And that takes effort to get that from the head to the heart. The hard work of studying so that we get the scriptures illuminated and we get increased understanding in the word of God. Cooperating with the Holy Spirit through the spiritual disciplines of giving and prayer and fasting and fellowship and solitude and prayer and meditation and all those things that you have heard about and will hear about to form Christ within us. And then the effort of discovering what our spiritual gifts are and then getting along with a body. My goodness, that one takes a whole lot of effort. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4, make every effort, not to create unity. God did that. Make every effort to guard the unity of the spirit. Develop the character qualities of humility, meekness, patience. There's fruit again. The fruit of the Spirit working to guard the unity. That's a lot of work. That's why he says make every effort. And then, of course, the effort of living in this tension between the already and not yet. What is going to enable you to persevere in this effort? This is a work that's going to take a lot of effect, time. Yes, you've been made new, no work of yours. Yes, there's the capacity to be renewed. But there's a cooperative work with the Holy Spirit that is a lifetime of hard work. What's going to keep us going? The answer is in a word that we use all the time, but we don't fully understand what it means. Bear with me for a few minutes as we wrap this up. The answer is the word glory. Now, what do we mean by glory? We use glory all the time. It's one of those words where the secular use of glory actually gets a lot closer to the truth. NBA finals are about to start right now. The Celtics used to be my favorite team when I first came to North America. So it's interesting to see them back in the finals. I'm kind of looking forward to watching Stephen Curry pray there. Although I probably won't see any game to the fullest. But I, but I watched Michael Jordan at his site. How many times have I seen a replay of this scene? Eight seconds left. Bulls trailing by one. They're going to inbound the ball. Everybody knows it's going to go to Jordan. Jordan gets the block. The clock starts ticking. And he's doing nothing. He's just doing this. Jordan, it's time. It's eight, seven, six, five. Then a quick dig this way, a quick dig that way. A poor defenseman is on the floor. And a jump shot, swish, nothing but net. Game over. Bulls win. I've seen that. And what do I say? Wow. Look at that. Did you see that? That's glory. Glory is anything that makes us go wow. I remember my 40th anniversary, Florida, on a beach in Florida, waiting outside a really nice restaurant. Some kind folk had given us an amazing certificate for that. So tenderloin steak was waiting, along with broiled shrimp and whatnot. But we were waiting for our table. And all of a sudden, the sky lit up with a sunset like the witches I'd never seen before. I made a dash to my car to get my camera, snap on the widest angle lens. Tenderloin steak was all forgotten. I, few moments ago, I was getting irritated that they weren't calling our table. Now I'm praying they don't call my table at all because I want to capture this in all of its beauty and show it to as many people as they can. That's glory. I remember the first time I photographed Horseshoe Bend on Page Valley, Arizona, 270 degrees turn. That, that river, the Colorado River, had cut a ravine 1,700 foot deep. And I snapped on my widest angle lens and I found a place where the edge was sloping away. My wife wasn't there, fortunately. Looped my camera around, draped the camera over the edge 
lying like this. And I am a risk averse person who would never dream of doing that. Why? There was beauty that had so captured my heart that it demanded a closer encounter I wanted more. That's glory and that's what glory does. Now, why am I telling you that? What does this have to do with the question of how we're going to endure? All of that is a watered-down version of the glory of Jesus. What is the gospel? You would say correctly, well, Jesus died for my sin. I pray the sinner's prayer, receive Christ, and I spend eternity with him. It is, but it makes us so much about us, right? What does the Bible say is the gospel? Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, the gospel is the gospel of the glory of Christ. Two verses later, he says, God has commanded the light to shine in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the gospel of the glory of God. Yes, it certainly involves me acknowledging that I'm a willful sinner who needs a savior. I'm a weak individual who needs a sanctifier. I'm a wounded person who needs a healer. And I'm in warfare with the enemy who needs an anointed king. Yes, a willful, weak, wounded warrior needs Jesus as savior, sanctifier, healer, and coming king. But, but, the way in which he does his work of saving, sanctifying, healing, and giving me victory is what makes him look good, not me. And I find my joy in that. Because his glory has the same effect of making me want more. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit. You guessed it. Whose job is it to make Lord Jesus look glorious? The Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus said. I'll send another. When he comes, he'll do many things for you. And we listed some of them. But he will not speak of himself. He will take of me and make them known to you. The job of the Holy Spirit is to reveal Jesus and to make Jesus glorious to you and me. So it therefore becomes the foundational ministry of the Holy Spirit to make Christ glorious to us that undergirds the regeneration, the assurance, the illumination, the spiritual formation, the helping, and the spiritual gifting. All right, now you know, no longer a forgotten God, no longer on the back burner, not holy spearmen, but right up in the front of your radar screen. So what are you going to do? Again, we're not left blind. As I continued this five-week journey of walking, praying, discerning, one word and two stories kept coming to mind. The two stories say the same thing. The first one is the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Half-breed lady. She was a product of an intermarriage between Jewish people that had been left behind by Nebuchadnezzar when he conquered the southern kingdom of Judah. And when Assyria was con conquered the northern kingdom, it was resettled by people from other places. And the Samaritans were the product of the intermarriage between these two groups. They didn't like the Jews and the Jews didn't like them. They had no dealings with each other. Jesus comes across one of these women, a woman of what we would say ill repute. She had come in the middle of the day when it was really hot to get water so that nobody else would uh, point their fingers at her, having had five broken marriages, now living with someone. And to cut a long story short, Jesus engages with her in a dialogue. It's all about water. And he says, if you knew who I was, if you knew who I was, and you asked me for water, you would ask me, I would give you living water. And John adds that he was talking about the Holy Spirit. 
And what Jesus implies in that anecdotal story, he specifically teaches through Luke. But Luke records for us that Jesus on one occasion said, how many of you be, would give your child a stone when they ask for bread? How many would give them a scorpion when they ask for fish? If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So the one word that came to my mind was ask. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer of asking. And you join me wherever you are on this spectrum. Whatever particular work of the Spirit you need at this time. I have not crafted this prayer. I'm praying it right now on this spot. And then I want to join, ask you to join me in a declaration of our resolve. Lord Jesus, we are left breathless. And we therefore ask. We now know who you are. And we know that you have living water to give to us. And we desperately need living water. There are some of us here within the sound of my voice who have dabbled in all kinds of religion, including Christianity as a religion, and have walked away from it. Thank you that they are here today. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit will regenerate them, give them new life, make them new, give them birth from above. Spirit of God, then give them that witness that they are thus being ushered into the presence of a Father who loves them forever set free from shame and guilt motivation, to live a life of service and love out of a growing assurance that they are loved and cherished by the Father who created them and delights in them, and Jesus, their elder brother, who leads them in worship in the Father's presence. Give them a new hunger for the Word of God, for those that have found God's Word gathering dust on a bookshelf, or are sitting here with a glazed look on their faces Sunday after Sunday. Dig out their ears. Give life to the preachers who preach. Take ordinary syllables and gild them with gold. Set hearts burning, instruct minds, inflame and energize bodies, and commission them afresh with the glorious thoughts. Form the fruit of the Spirit within them, Lord, wherever there is the opposite wherever there is strife and tension and division, we pray that you will begin the work of fruit formation, of love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, long-suffering, gentleness, self-control, and perseverance. And for all of us who negotiate that very difficult tension between already Jesus is on the throne, but not yet we see too much chaos on earth, teach us to avoid the twin pitfalls of a superficial optimism naive optimism and a crippling pessimism and instead live as holy, optimistic men and women who energize the people that come to us and send them away feeling more hopeful and renew our understanding of the spiritual gifts. Give us a fresh love for the body, connected from the head. May we be visible representatives of Jesus to the world around us and throughout it all, Holy Spirit, we pray Moses' prayer, show us your glory as the Spirit makes Jesus glorious to us. In your name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. Now join me. Join me in this simple declaration. And if it helps you to lift your fist up like this, do it, okay? I'm going to do it. I want to declare war on a mood of non-expectation and a spirit of resignation pessimism, and disenchantment. I will keep on asking the Holy Spirit to fill me. I will keep on expecting to be filled 
and I will keep on asking to see the glory of Jesus and I will keep on doing so till my last breath even as I stay engaged with Jesus through God's word in prayer in community and on mission so help me God amen